It's That Stack of Books. I'm Nancy Pearl, here along with Steve Scheer and Katie Sewell. And a table full of folks. You gave us a very difficult task. The best book that we have read so far this year of 2015. So I had a very hard time choosing the best book that I read this year. And I have um, decided that um, I have to choose one nonfiction and one work of fiction. Wait a minute, so you already get two? <laughs> <laughs> you can edit me out. <laughs> That's right. So we all have to choose one. <laughs> right, right. I need something. Um, so the best work of nonfiction that I read, and these are both books that we've talked about briefly before, but the best work of nonfiction that I've read this year is called American Reckoning by a man named Chris Appy, Christian Appy, who's a professor of history at one of the U University of Massachusetts colleges. And it is, it, it is so good. It's about the myth of American exceptionalism and how the United States from really the 1940s on has taken um, uh, taken the moral high ground in what we say, but not necessarily the moral high ground in what we have done involving ourselves in other countries' politics and uh, political choices. It's it's not an academic book. It's written for the the the, the interested reader. Um, he he has written several books before that on Vietnam. This centers on Vietnam, but he really begins much earlier and goes to the present in in his coverage. It's just um, a book that makes you think. It, it just fills in gaps in, certainly for me, it filled in gaps in my memory, gaps in my things that I might have known, um, but what, it couldn't explain without reading the book. Um, and ranges, of course, worldwide from Africa to Iran to Central America and, and further. You know, you just gave me an idea how we will organize this. Does anybody have a book uh, for this? topic that's a non-fiction book. You want to say what your non-fiction book is there, lady? My non-fiction book would be the autobiography of Ben Franklin, Benjamin Franklin. That was my favorite one this year. Because it's uh, what I define as a cozy book, but it also teaches you a lot about history. It's cozy in the sense that he talks a lot about morals and good upstanding living, which I really like reading about this year. Katie, I thought, I, thought, I thought a cozy book was where you like were curled up on your on your soft armchair reading about cats who no, like to solve mysteries. <laughs> your divan. For me, cozy. It's it's more about a different time and a different way of living. So I really enjoyed it. Tom, would you? Uh, what's your book? So this is called The Last Stand by Nathaniel Philbrick. I have a feeling I may have discussed this before, but this is right on spot the theme of American exceptionalism because in my era as a child and certainly longer ago than that George Custer was an American hero he was a martyr and he was part of our exceptionalism and manifest destiny and the Indians were clearly the bad guys and and now 150 years after the battle 
the interesting piece of this book is why were all those Indians at that spot at that time, and why was the United States Army going after them and uh, picking on them, basically, and, and going to battle on them. And I think most Americans don't understand that, that we had actually completely withdrawn a treaty that we had just made with the Indians because the land we had given them subsequently got found to have gold, and so we wanted it back. So I just want to say that's, I loved that book, Tom. That is, that was one of the, that's a terrific read. I mean, it's impossible. It's one of those page turners. You just want to find out, even though you know what happens, you want to find out how it happened. And, but I was just in Detroit in August and I, and I looked at the, I went by the elementary school by, by where I grew up and it wasn't the elementary school I went to, but it was the one nearest to where I grew up. And it was called George A. Custer Elementary School, but it had been the name. So that's still etched in the stone over the front door, but the um, they had changed it now. Uh, you know, there was a sign out front that they had changed it to the Thurgood Marshall Elementary School. But I thought, what kind of, I mean, can you imagine? I had the same feeling that you described, like we made this man an American hero. We named schools after him. And it was just such a well, incongruous uh, thing. Well, that gets to my question. Oh, good. What, how, how do you think that Philbrick created real warts and all characters when so many biographers over the last 140 years presented us with the heroic George Armstrong Custer, for example. So, so I think Philbrick does a good job. I think he's actually quite even-handed about it. Uh, Custer doesn't come off as a, a totally negative person. He comes off as a complex, complicated person who had uh, amazing uh, talents that included uh, a, a courage beyond what most people had to go into dangerous er, uh, uh, areas, uh, and he was a uh, leader of men to a certain extent. He was a successful, I think he was a, a colonel at that time, and he, he and his brother had been extremely successful during the Civil War. So they were already heroes going into this battle, and Philbrick makes it clear that they were very successful army officers, but he was also arrogant and he had poor judgment, and he was rash and temperamental, uh, and he thought that his small group could take on any size of an Indian a contingent uh, and defeat them. And up to that point, he had, he was successful, and so he thought he could do it again, and he was, he was wrong. But there is also this shift in history, right? There's a shift in the narrative. I was in the South, as I mentioned, and one thing that's happening is in many communities, people are seizing on the naming and they're renaming Confederate general heroes streets that run through their communities and they're renaming them for their, their heroes, the people that mattered in their lives. But there is this debate about how much do you do that because you don't want to, and I've used this explicitly, whitewash the history. So you want to know that some of those people were there, but I mean, it's so far to the other way that that's why people are seizing it. So, so it's interesting that Detroit made that choice. Yeah. And of course, Custer wasn't associated with Detroit otherwise, right? Not, not that I know of. I mean, I'm trying to remember. And wasn't he a good husband too? Wasn't that one of his, doesn't Philbrook talk about his marriage 
that he, I thought he that he was a, all, in addition to all his other positive traits. I thought he was a very loyal, devoted husband. But maybe I'm remembering. So the way that went was his wife was loyal and devoted to him, <laughs> very, very much so. In fact, she followed him into the the West, and she was at the forts where he was stationed. So she was very, very devoted to him. And in fact, that's one of the reasons he became a hero and a martyr was because after the battle and after his death, she took it upon herself to build him as an American hero. And she went to great lengths to promote him and what he had done. And she was extremely committed to him. Uh, he wasn't so committed to her. Control the narrative, control the history. Um, similar to that uh, book, there's another book out there, Black Hills. I don't know if you've ever read that by Dan Simons or Simmons, which is an interesting story about an uh, Indian who was a teenager at the time of the last stand who, by coming in contact with Custer and touching him as he's dying, has his ghost transfer into him. And he wind, it follows him in the future. He winds up being, um, his name is Pa Sapa, which means Black Hills, which is where they built um, uh, Mount Rushmore. He winds up working on, as a dynamite worker on, on um, the construction of Mount Rushmore. And it's all the story of his time leading from that moment where he touches Custer, his relationship with Crazy Horse, his later uh, meeting of Custer's wife. It's an interesting uh, story. Just to clarify, though, Keith, that's, that's fiction, right? It is fiction, yes. <laughs> I just wanted to be sure I didn't want people to get Because, you know, it's altogether possible. Uh, Robin, what's your, what nonfiction book was the best for you this year? Well, I, I have to second Nancy's recommendation. I know you need to read Philbrick now, The Last Stand, but American Reckoning is... Uh, is something uh, for a wider audience than what I brought in, and it really shows a lot about our, how American exceptionalism is based on a history of slavery, genocide, and imperialism, and how the killing of civilians in Vietnam became part of U.S. policy, and I think he makes that very clear and then goes into some of our current... Uh, uh, wars as well. So I, I, that American Reckoning is really a great book for a wider audience. I brought in a little different book. It's a little more academic, but it was maybe the most illuminating book of the year for me. It's called FBI's How J. Edgar Hoover's Ghost Readers Framed African American Literature by William Maxwell. And uh, Maxwell is a history professor at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, FBI's comes from a Richard Wright poem about FBI and the surveillance of, uh, well, him in particular. But I, I, I had a job where I went through hundreds of FBI documents, mostly on involving Dr. King and the, what they called COINTELPRO, this uh, counterintelligence program uh, against, uh, that was aimed at African-American civil rights leaders. But this was an incredible story. I, I didn't know about this, I don't think, maybe snatches of it. But there was an organized effort by the FBI from 1919 to 1972 to uh, 
spy on African-American writers, and it turns out that the FBI knew a lot more about African-American literature than most people in universities because this effort was so intensive and so extensive. And it, he goes on to... Some of those uh, guys got PhDs, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. right? <laughs> this guy got reviewed thousands of documents, and it's now on a website as well, William Maxwell again. But there's documents from people who are spying on, like uh, Langston Hughes, Richard Wright, Ralph Ellison, Lorraine Hansberry. All the greats of African-American literature it began with their anti radicalism effort following World War II and they wanted to track people who they thought had communistic sympathies. Not surprising that that's the case. You had a, you had a nonfiction book too, right, Ross? The book I brought is The Girls of Atomic City and I'm not sure if somebody brought this before but I'm just finishing it. My book club's discussing it next week and it's just kind of mind-boggling and it isn't that we've never heard of the Manhattan Project. It's not that we haven't heard of Oak Ridge, Tennessee but um, the author takes about a dozen real women, young girls, it's called the girls, they were mostly right out of high school, some had had some college. So this author interviewed three of the women, or maybe four of the women that are followed in this book. So she has a lot of first-hand things, I think some people kept journals, and you know, it's talking about the nurses, you know, one was a nurse, one was a statistician, one was a... a chemical scientist and some were clerical someone was a african-american woman and her husband from the south who weren't allowed to bring their children there and how they were that population was treated there was i mean this was 1943 to 45 and it's just pretty amazing and then afterwards she interviewed you know how did they feel about this afterwards when they found out and they mostly found out by hearing the radio broadcasts that mentioned oak ridge and they said, what? This is what we were doing? They had no idea. Don't you think it's interesting that, that, the, that these nonfiction books that we've talked about, are, are, we've all described them as kind of eye-opening or how much we learned from them. And I, I, I think that's one of the great things about reading is that almost no matter what book you read, you learn something. But when nonfiction, when narrative nonfiction is done well, it's like... I, I mean, it's, it like opens your mind. It's, it just does something so valuable. Well, well, my book is nonfiction, too. It's called Whistling Vivaldi, and it's by the scholar Claude Steele. He looks at how racial and gender bias arises in the individual and how it plays out in society. And the title comes from a story that a New York Times reporter told him, which is that when that New York Times reporter is walking on the street, in New York, and he's African-American, and it's nighttime, and people are approaching him, he will start whistling Vivaldi as a way of signaling that he's not a threat because, look, I'm part of the same club that you're a part of, white people. Don't worry about me. And it's the thing he has to do to keep himself safe. That is, uh, is frightening. Goes on to illustrate how that plays out for women and for all sorts of different groups in American culture. It's a really interesting book and eye-opening. Whistling Vivaldi. All right, what's your, what's your fiction book? So my fiction book <laughs> is called um, The Sympathizer by a Vietnamese, um, now Vietnamese American writer. Um, 
whose last name is N-G-U-Y-E-N. And it's the story of um, a South Vietnamese. You learn this right away, so I'm not giving anything away. It's set during the, the just the tail end of the Vietnam War. And uh, the South Vietnamese um, assistant to one of the high... Uh, military men in South Vietnam. They're just all, you know, remember the scene crowding into the, you know, the embassy trying to get out on those helicopters. Um, he does. He's one of the special ones. And what we learn right away is that he is really a spy for North Vietnam. And he comes to America. He's, you know, he's an immigrant to, to America. And how that all plays out but one of the one of the set pieces that is so interesting is he becomes um, an advisor to a movie director who is doing a big film about Vietnam, and he and and you know so of course you make all these connections in your mind. It's amazingly written. It is a it is a it is a harsh satire of 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 what life. Of, of life and it's you know it reminded me a little bit only it's much harsher of Catch-22 um, it's it's not easy to read there are some just very difficult scenes in it but boy it, it, it was the only novel it was one of the few novels that I cared about this year it's called The Sympathizer three words Viet Tan T-H-A-N-H win n-g-u-y-e-n i highly highly recommend it do you have a uh, fiction book you want to share with us becky um well i think uh probably my favorite book although that i read this year is called the hundred year old man who climbed out the window and disappeared very entertaining it was kind of a forrest gump swedish version the humor was very amusing Uh, it was just a very enjoyable book Oh, you have one? Yeah. What's yours? Uh, mine was The Long and Far Away Gone by Lou Burney, I think is his last name. And it's, it basically starts out with two people who were involved in a crime uh, in their youth. One was in a, a massacre, and he was the only person who survived. This all happens in the first chapter. And then the second person's sister disappeared. And the whole book is them trying to figure out why did I survive, and where, what happened to my sister? And it's really, really well done. Uh, Betsy Lindley, and um, the book I read was uh, A Manual for Cleaning Women by Lucia Berlin. It's a book of fiction of short stories. Uh, the author worked as a teacher, a house cleaner, assistant, an ER, emergency room, and a telephone operator. And all of these characters come alive in her book. Can I go back to nonfiction? Consider the Fork. It's a combination of history, science, and anthropology, and how we're shaped by the foods we eat and the conditions under which we do, and how that also shapes the um, implements we use in a culture that uses a walk, nomadic, Central Asians who had a lack of fuel, so they needed something that would cook the food very fast and be light and easy to move versus uh, some place like where they developed the cauldron where they would cook something simmering all day and trying to break down food. My name is Jenny Capella, and I have a nonfiction too. <laughs> Completely out of order here. Unlimiting you, step out of your past and into your purpose. 
And the reason this was so significant to me was a lot of the books in this kind of genre, I cringe and I just take the book and stick it in one of those free library things. Yeah. This one, he walks you through your own thinking. And one of the things he says that I love in here when you're looking at anything in your life is ask yourself, what matters about this? And then you just keep asking yourself, what matters about this? What matters about this? Until you really get to the heart and soul of whatever it is. So it made a huge difference to me finally to have a book that was more about unraveling and helping you help yourself. Well, so I, I also just finished a book yesterday for an interview with Patrick Kennedy. And his book was called A Common Struggle. And you, you know, you asked this question in October for the best books we've read so far. Really, we should probably ask it about every three months and then see which book sustains because we have another whole quarter here to go. And I have a feeling that book is going to end. It, it hasn't yet. It just came out, generated a lot of controversy. But I think once people read it, I think it's going to end up on a lot of best books lists just because it's so raw and emotional and honest and about from a famous person, a common struggle. It's about his addictions. Anyways, with that in mind, you know, there are a lot of books yet to come out, and you already talked about a few. Yeah, they're coming, I mean, they're coming out still fast and furiously in time for um, the holiday season, and, you know, the most of the big awards shortlists have come out already, but there are still a few left to go. Yeah, still some great reading ahead, and we'll do this again maybe in December. Yeah, we'll check. We'll check to see if they all still fit within our best of for the year. Thank you all. We'll have that list of the books we talked about posted at Facebook, That Stack of Books with Nancy Pearl and Steve Scher. Also at thatstackofbooks.com. I mentioned that I had read Patrick Kennedy's book, A Common Struggle. It's a powerful story. I interviewed Patrick Kennedy. He's a former member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Rhode Island. He's been a leading political voice on mental illness, addiction, brain diseases. Even as he led on those issues, though, he dealt with his own schizophrenia and addictions. And his book is A Common Struggle, a personal journey through the past and future of mental illness and addiction. Kennedy was the son of Senator Edward Kennedy. He struggled with his father's responses to his own and his family's mental and substance abuse issues. It wasn't something the family talked about. Here's an excerpt from the conversation I had with Kennedy. I asked him about how the book was received by his family members. There was criticism and reports of unhappiness. I asked him if he was surprised at all by that. Yeah, no, I mean, I've said before that if this were cancer, every one of my family members have suffered from cancer. You'd say it was a heroic fight, you know. My father um, ultimately lost the fight to cancer, but he fought it like nobody else. My sister lost her fight, but she she was really persevering, and my brother and my mother all, both had cancer. You'd say, uh, that's heroic. Uh, but you place that with another illness that's physical, biological, genetic, and all of a sudden uh, we make these uh, moral judgments on the people as if they had control over their illness. And that's the thing that society doesn't understand, is that these illnesses, no one voluntarily humiliates themselves, alienates themselves from friends and family, um, isolates and marginalizes themselves. I mean, that's just not the human nature. The human nature is, you know, how many people can I get to love me, care for me, embrace me? 
You don't get up in the morning thinking, how many people can I piss off today? How many people can I get to hate me? How many times can I do something really self-destructive that will cost me the love and affection of the people that matter most to me? I mean, that ought to be a pretty good telltale sign. These are not uh, conditions that are voluntary because who would voluntarily subject themselves the kind of humiliation that comes from from these illnesses. Um, so, you know, but it's hard for people to wrap their heads around it. And I have to tell you, I know it because I spent a better part of my life also trying to hide, even while I was the uh, sponsor of the principal legislation that said the brain was part of the body and we needed to reimburse for all brain-related illnesses in the same way we would any other physical illness. So I'm the the champion of parity, but I still, as a, as a patient myself, would uh, routinely try to keep people from finding out that I, too, also needed the very services that I was advocating for at a policy level. Do you know why? Why, why was that the case for you personally? Well, this stuff is entrenched. I mean, we have, it, it's so inculcated us that we are just saturated with this thing being a... Uh, a moral issue, not a medical issue, or a character flaw as opposed to a chemistry issue. That's just the nature of how we are brought up to believe. It's very hard to change the narrative. Very hard. And part of the reason why this has been a liberating experience for me, as, as much as it's difficult, is that I don't want to be carrying this stuff into my children's life. And, uh, you know, I am absolutely programmed to repeat what was imprinted in my hard drive if I don't continue to try to be mindful of the fact that that software that was put in there is faulty, needs to get rebooted and get updated. Um, so, you know, that's what this is about. You know, in another generation... People will be wondering why it took us so long to come around to these things. I like that image. So what's the software? What's the flawed software in your head that you're Software is that, uh, you know, as a human being, I'm uh, damaged, that I'm no good, that I, uh, the things that uh, my mood disorder is just uh, puts me... In a, in a category where I'm worthless, you know, it's all that stuff that's just, uh, you know, you know, dangerous to our, our lives because it really, you know, creates havoc for us if we don't turn that off and understand we're human beings, we're not perfect, but we're loved unconditionally, um, that we're, we are lovable. Uh, I mean, these are not messages that we get. You know, you, uh, you wrote, uh, our, our common struggle is less about the illnesses than our inability to talk about those illnesses. So how pervasive is that even among the groups that are working on these illnesses or among the medical fields that are working on these illnesses? So the comparison is when we would have, like, breast cancer, Day, I mean, we would be flooded in the Congress. You know, everybody would be wearing pink. I'd have to, even though I represent the smallest state in the country, I'd have to reserve extra big, you know, rooms next to my congressional office just to accommodate all the people from Rhode Island uh, who would want to come down and be there. 
but when it was Mental Health Awareness Day or Week, I mean, you could look down both hallways and uh, and be ho hope that someone came into your office. Uh, I mean, it's just, uh, and that's still today. I mean, you just look at the indices of suicide, twice the rate of homicide, uh, overdose, uh, you know, larger than traffic fatalities as cause of death, uh, you know, on and on and on. And, you know, where is the advocacy? You know, the silence is deafening. And it all goes to no one wants to organize because no one wants to put their hand up and say, I'm one of those people. And, uh, and that's at the heart of our problem to change public policy. Every one of these recent shootings, the perpetrator was someone who everybody turned their back on. Oh, he's, you know, you know, jack boots and camouflage, likes a lot of guns, doesn't go out, doesn't talk to anyone, isolates in his room, plays video games all day. You know, it's like, hello, does someone bother to say, and, you know, it's just, and then of course many other of these stories are people who have bounced around in systems that are, you know, f not coherent, so people fall through the cracks routinely. And, and it's in a way that we would never allow if it were any other illness. That's the thing that's so, so tragic. Patrick Kennedy talking about his book, A Common Struggle, A Personal Journey Through the Past and Future of Mental Illness and Addiction. There will be a That Stack of Books Extra coming to you soon with my entire interview with Kennedy. We spoke at the U Bookstore, October 12, 2015. We will be back at the Bryant Corner Cafe soon for another edition of That Stack of Books. Follow us for announcements on Twitter, at That Stack. Facebook, That Stack of Books with Nancy Pearl and Steve Scher. Subscribe at iTunes, listen on Stitcher. Find all the episodes at thatstackofbooks.com. Happy reading. <laughs>